Amen. God said that he would build his church. Amen. Now, whatever God desires to build, the devil desires to tear down. As we mentioned last week at the beginning of our series study here in September. And we said how the devil loves to discourage, deceive, detour, destroy. He loves to tear down what God is seeking to build up. But God is victorious. He overcomes. He always wins. Doesn't always feel like it. Doesn't always look like it. But he's won the war. And we are fighting the little side skirmishes in our victory march to glory. And so last week we just started this series entitled Revitalize. And I shared with you that my, one of my biggest uh, burdens that I carry as a pastor is that our church would be healthy and, 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 and that I would be doing what God has called me to and entrusted me with and leading our church to spiritual health and vitality. And certainly no pastor wants to see his church sick or in the process of, of dying. And, we, and uh, Brother Jeremy, if you'll just follow along and click, I'm not worried about clicking today, I'm just preaching. Um, and so we talked about how there's four different kinds of churches. We gave out a book last week. All of those copies left within a matter of moments. We do have two left on the table out there, I think, unless someone grabbed them on their way in. Those are free for you to take. How many of you had a chance to read that book this week? Did anybody get through it? Linda, thank you so much. Linda gets an extra cookie in the hospitality room today. Thank you, Sister Linda. And glad you had a chance to read it. I'd love to have a conversation with you, Linda, about that afterwards just to get your thoughts and feedback on the book. Was it a blessing to you? Was it, was it eye-opening to you to see why churches struggle? Good. And so Linda gives it a full endorsement, so go and read it. And we really hope that this book uh, creates a conversation in our church that we uh, ask, our, ask ourselves, is our church a part of the 10% of churches in America that are actually healthy and thriving? Or do we show symptoms of sickness? How many of you have been sick recently? <coughs> Stuffy nose, cough. You know, if you deal with those symptoms long enough, what do you do? You go to the doctor so that you get an accurate diagnosis and you get a, a good treatment so that you get better. And so what we're asking ourselves over the next several weeks here in the month of September is, are we sick as a church? How sick are we? Are we healthy? Or hopefully we're not in the 10% that are dying. Um, and so we ask ourselves that question, what is it that helps a church be healthy, uh, full of life, um, and, and making sure that we're growing both spiritually and numerically. And as we studied last week in our sermon last week, we talked about this issue of faithful stewardship. And we talked about how God has entrusted to us the, the resources and the opportunities um, before us, and he expects us to be fruitful in those. And we, and we talked about how faithfulness is really fruitfulness. And you can't divorce the two, especially in that passage that we studied last week in Matthew chapter number 25. And so we looked at stewardship last week and we looked at why God wants us to be faithful stewards with what he's given to us in every area of our life, but, but specifically in this area of church life and how we steward our, our resources and our opportunities uh, for God here in our local church. This week we're looking at this topic and that is one another. Everybody say that phrase out loud. One, two, three, one another. It's a very uh, powerful phrase, and we're going to look at this phrase as it's used in the New Testament today to help us better understand it so that we can, by God's grace, through the power of the gospel, live that out because we are a part of a church family here. We're a part of one another together. And so with that said, let's read a couple of verses. John chapter 13 and then a couple of verses in Romans. So John chapter 13 is where we're going to start. And at the end of our sermon, we'll swing back around to these two verses. So let's start by reading these. John 13, verses 34 and 35. The Bible says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And I loved what, what Brother Dwayne read in 1 John 4. It goes right along with these two verses um, when it talks about um, how God's love informs and strengthens and makes our love for one another what it should be. And so that was a great passage. Thank you for sharing that today, worship team. 
Let's flip over to Romans 12, verse 10, and look at this verse. It says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. And then Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. Father, bless this time in your word today as we'll be looking at a lot of verses that that mention this phrase, one another, a hundred times in the New Testament. This phrase is used in 94 verses. And, And so, Father, it's vitally important that we understand what this phrase means and how it applies to a healthy, vibrant, thriving local church. And so, Father, would you guide my thoughts and my words today? May they minister grace to the hearer. And, Father, may your word produce a transformational life in our life today. We thank you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Robinson Crusoe is a famous story uh, from years gone by. How many of you are familiar with the story of Robinson Crusoe? Very famous story. Now, Robinson Crusoe and its plot and theme has been retold several times since the original writing of of Robinson Crusoe. Probably one of the most famous retellings or themes and variations on Robinson Crusoe is a film from maybe 10 years ago called Castaway with Tom Hanks. Anybody ever seen Castaway and how how Tom Hanks starts talking to the soccer ball or the volleyball? I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if I've ever seen the movie in total, but I just remember Remember the scene where he's, where he's got this friend now, this volleyball, and it's got hair on it and all this stuff. So anyway, the whole point of these kinds of stories where someone is secluded, stranded on a desert island, nobody else around, the whole theme of those kinds of stories, and specifically with Robinson Crusoe, is to ask this question. What happens when a person is cut off from society and from all luxuries of life and is forced to survive on their own in total isolation from any other human contact. That's what all of these movies and these stories that have been ripped off originally from Robinson Crusoe explore. They explore what's the mental dilemmas that that mankind goes through when they're all alone in solitude. You see, Because in Robinson Crusoe, he was in a very beautiful and idyllic setting. He was in an island paradise. In fact, he had enough wreckage from the wreckage of the ship to be able to build a nice little hut on the island. He created several little ingenious ways to survive and to enjoy that island paradise. But listen to one of the famous quotes here in Robinson Crusoe. He says, singled out and separated, as it were, from all the world to be miserable. So Robinson Crusoe was unhappy, not because of the wonderful luscious fruit that was growing on those island paradise trees or or because of the beautiful uh, water that, that he was able to enjoy. None of that was what made him unhappy. It was the fact that he didn't have someone else to share it. What this points us to, what this story and many others like Castaway and other retellings of the Robinson Crusoe plot remind us is that there's a basic human need for community, for one another. Human beings were created to live and thrive in community with both God and man. And today we look at this phrase, one another. It appears a hundred times in 94 verses in your New Testament part of your Bible. Isn't that amazing? A hundred times, 94 verses, this phrase appears. And this phrase is incredibly valuable and vital for us to understand so that we can be a healthy and thriving church. And so it's our prayer today that God would show us just how important it is to embrace this truth of one another and to practice it in our lives. Here's the main thought today. A church that is healthy and thriving is a church that understands the value and the vitality of the phrase, one another, and why it's so important. And so with that said, there's four things I want you to write down there in your notes. If you have a handout, go ahead and uh, get those out and jot down these notes with us as we look at several scriptures that speak to what this phrase, one another, means. First of all, one another speaks to 
the need and the desire for God to have unity in our church family, in this body of believers. So number one, one another means, if it means anything, number one, it means unity. It means unity. Um, Man in solitude, as we've already said, man in solitude is misery. And so it's not good that a man be alone. We were made for community. The only thing in all of creation, if you think about it, that was not good when God created it was the fact that God said it's not good that a man be alone. And all the men are like, amen, pastor. I mean, again, as I was looking at that video last night of our wedding, I'm thinking, I'm so glad I'm not alone. I'm so glad that I have somebody to share this life with. And so God said it was not good for man to be alone. Though perfect and sinless in perfect harmony with God, Adam still needed another human being to share community with. And so God made another human being from Adam's side and his wife Eve and Adam enjoyed perfect unity in one anotherness. Of course, right after God did that, we know Satan was right there on the hills to try to divide that unity between Adam and Eve and God. And we know that he was successful. And because of that, from the very beginning, there was disunity. There was division. There was guilt. There was shame. There was fear. There was blame. There was hiding. And so from the very beginning, God has always desired unity, both one another with God, but also one another with man. And from the very beginning, Satan has tried to destroy that. And so as we study this phrase, one another, as we study this issue of unity, of the many passages here, the 94 verses where this phrase, one another, is mentioned, the subject of unity receives the most attention. Over one-third of those 94 verses, the theme or the topic in the use of one another is the idea of unity. Listen to several verses. You can look at them on the screen as we go through them quickly. 1 Peter 3.8 says this, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. So right there in that verse, there's this theme of unity. Be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. Secondly, another verse here, Philippians 2, verse 2. It says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one Mind. Again, the theme of unity, Romans 12, 16. The Bible says, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. So we get in that verse a little bit of an idea that one of the enemies of unity is pride. One of the enemies of unity is arrogance or conceit. But one of the great friends of unity and one of the great foundations to build true unity is humility. So we get that. We'll come back to that here in a second. Philippians 4.2, another verse that establishes this theme of unity. Go ahead, guys. Philippians 4.2, or did I put it in there? There it is. Paul is confronting an issue here. Uh, I I know. I skipped the verse, didn't I, Jeremy? Ephesians 4, verse uh, 3, I believe it is. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then Paul actually addresses in Philippians 4.2... He calls out two members of the church of Philippi who were not unified. He says, I beseech Yodius and, and, and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Interesting. So Paul calls this out, this issue of, of unity. Now, uh, there's a lot of other verses that, that, that deal with the church getting along and using these. And I'm not going to put these on the screen. Just listen quickly. Uh, Mark 9.50 says, be at peace with one another. John 6.43 says, don't grumble among one another. Romans 12.6 and 15.5 say, be of the same mind with one another. Romans 15.7 says, to accept one another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.33, we'll be practicing this tonight. It says, wait for one another uh, in, in, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, because if you don't, there's going to be division. Uh, Galatians 5.15, don't bite and devour and consume one another. How often, uh, how, many, how, how do we typically do that? I don't think Paul's saying that the church of Galatia was being cannibalistic. But what they were doing is, is they were biting and devouring one another with their words and with their attitudes. And so they were being biting and devourous. And so Galatians 5.15 says, don't bite and devour and consume one another. Galatians 5.26 says, don't challenge or envy one another. Ephesians 4.2 says, be gently, uh, patiently tolerate one another. 
Uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Bear with one another, forgive one another. Colossians 3.13, seek good for one another and don't repay evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, don't complain against one another. James 4.11 and 5.9, and then confess your faults one to another. James 5.16. So over and over, God makes the case in his word that one another, if it means anything, it means that we are united together. Now, what does it mean to be united together? Does that mean we agree on everything? That we agree on every preference? That we agree on even every conviction? Unity is the foundation for a godly community, but what does unity mean? As I've preached and shared several times over the years that I've been your pastor, there's one thing we need to make sure we're clear on is that unity doesn't mean uniformity. Doesn't mean that we all look the same. Everybody go ahead and take out your string. We're going to refer to this string several times through the sermon, hopefully today. Go ahead and hold up your string. Notice something about your string. Everybody has somewhat of a different color. That means we're different. This church would be really, really, really boring if they were all like me. And can I get an amen? Well, good. I'm glad it wasn't an enthusiastic amen. But anyway, yeah, it would be really boring if the church was all like me. It would be really boring if it was all like you. Now, I do think that unity on a basic level means that we're united in basic fundamental doctrines. Because how can two walk together except they be agreed on what's most important in their life? And so those are the fundamental doctrines of the faith. So we're united in that. And we're united in direction, right? We're united in purpose and calling. And so that's what unity means. Unity at its base level means that we are united in our doctrine, in our beliefs, in our purpose. And we're united in showing to one another the love of Christ to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what unity is. But unity is not uniformity. So that means you might have different preferences, some of you might prefer to wear, uh, uh, to, to be a little bit more dressed up when you come to church than others. Some of you might prefer uh, a broader range of musical styles than others. Some of you might have other kinds of preferences that would differ from others. So, I mean, we already know that some of you pull for the, for the wrong football team or you, or you vote for a different local candidate than someone else does. And so there's, there's different preferences and even convictions, and that's where it gets more difficult, because convictions are strongly held beliefs that also we feel many times uh, roll over into issues of morality, in which many do. So it's a little bit more of a gray area. And so the early church, if there was any church that should have been divided from the beginning, it was the early church. Because you had Jew and Gentile coming together. And man, did they have a lot of different ideas on diet, on dress on whether you should have a surgery when you're an eight-year-old baby boy or not. I mean, there was a lot of different uh, beliefs that were completely different. And in the book of Acts, this is why I love the Bible, they confront those issues head on. It's not like they pretend that everything's unicorns and roses and daffodils. There was serious issues going on in the early church, but they came out of it unified together. And so what is unity? It's a harmony of heart in the midst of the diversity of backgrounds and preferences and convictions because the one ruling re reality for a church that is thriving and healthy is that the gospel binds us together. Philippians 1.27 says, Finally, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is the glue. The gospel is the foundation. The gospel is what connects us all together. I might disagree with you on this preference, or I might even disagree with you on that conviction. But in brotherly love together, we see something bigger than preferences and even some convictions. We see that the doctrine, the gospel of Jesus binds us together and keeps us glued together and united. And therefore, because the gospel is this overarching uh, ruler and, and, and it reigns supreme, Jesus and his message reigns supreme. He's the chief shepherd, shepherd. Because of that, we then rank under. And we're like, yes, Lord, this preference or that preference, I don't have to champion that. I get to champion the gospel through the midst of everything that see, seeks to detour us, 
distract us, delay us, and discourage us. And so unity, if there's anything this phrase one another means throughout the New Testament, it means unity. Over a third of the verses where this phrase is mentioned, it's addressing this issue of unity. And so unity is this idea of a harmonious heart knit together in love because of what the gospel has done in our life. And then unity involves a singleness of purpose and action. The idea of unity is, is that we're all moving in one direction. We're all working for movement in a certain direction, kind of like a rowing team. Um, I, love, I love watching the Olympic rowers. Man, can they go fast? I mean, when you get 12, or I don't know how many are on a team, but when you get, I think it's 12, in that boat, in that little skinny boat, and they all row at the same time in the same direction, they're moving as fast as a motorboat. Hello. I mean, it's fast. They build up some serious momentum. And what does that show you? When everybody is choosing to work together in perfect synchronicity. I love that word, synchronicity. Say it with me, synchronicity. Oh, it just sounds good. Uh, when, when, when people work in perfect synchronicity, look at how far they can go, how much they can accomplish, and how little of a time they can do it. And so this is why God gave gave us the church. This is why it could be said in just two decades, I believe, maybe two and a half decades, it could be said in Acts 17 that the church turned the world upside down because they were all rowing in the same direction. They were all working in perfect synchronicity and harmony with the Spirit of God, and there was great unity. And so it's a sense of harmony and agreement and relationship. Unity is only possible, though, if there is humility and a willingness to esteem others higher than oneself. One of the reasons unity struggles is because of this unwillingness to humble oneself and to serve another, to, to take on the role that Jesus did in, in washing the disciples' feet. Paul continues, and he says in Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, he says the following, Philippians 2, verse 3, or did I put it on there, guys? I didn't put it on there. All right, let me look it up here real quick. Turn with me to Philippians 2, verse 3. It's important. So important, I forgot to put it in the slides. This is what happens. Philippians 2, verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And so God calls us to be united. And unity serves um, to help the church move forward, obviously, but it also serves as a powerful witness to unbelievers. And I thought about that this week. Why does unity in a church? Because Jesus said back there in John 13, one of the scriptures that we read this morning as we embarked on our topical survey of this, of this phrase, one another, he said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Why does unity serve as a powerful witness to unbelievers? Go ahead and hold up your string again. All right, we all got our string. We're all different. Sometimes we're antagonistically different. Can I get a witness? Sometimes we get on each other's nerves. In fact, the reality is, is that many times people are enemies before the gospel happens in their life. Why does unity serve as such a powerful witness to unbelievers? Because there's no other community on earth where people who should be enemies are now not only friends, but they're family. They call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, there's no reason why I should gather with an Alabama fan on a Sunday morning and worship together with them. I'm just kidding, a little tongue-in-cheek. But the point is, is there's no reason why I should gather with, I mean, many, I mean, think about it. If it wasn't the gospel that brought us together in our relationship to start off with, we probably would have never met. In fact, we probably would still be enemies with some people in this room if it wasn't for the gospel. You see, that's what the world looks at and says, you mean Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the tax collector, were in the same upper room together? That doesn't make sense. Because if you understand the different ends of the political spectrum of both of those men, there was no reason why they should be in the same room. I've told you that before. And so there was something so powerful about the gospel in that first century that brought this idea of unity to the local church. And, and this phrase, one another, 
course, the reason that there's so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church is not made up of natural friends, but it's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not what binds together any other human community. Every other worldly human community on this earth is bound together either by common education, common ethnicity, common uh, common jobs, common income levels, common political preferences, common nationalities. But Christians come together not because they form a natural group, but because they form a spiritual group that's been rescued and made new by Jesus to give him their common allegiance and devotion. This is what unity is about. It's about understanding that what binds us is bigger than any other thing in this world. It's the gospel. And so a church that understands and values unity is a church that is healthy. A church that is constantly divided over direction and purpose is a church that is sick and ineffective. I mean, think about it. If you had one of your body systems fighting all the other body systems, what's going to happen? You're going to be sick. You might even be dying. And so God points out here this reality that one another, if it means anything, it means unity. Number two, this phrase one another also means hospitality hospitality. 1 Peter 1.9 says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I like that God put that part in there without grumbling. Sometimes maybe we show hospitality and it's with the wrong attitude because we're supposed to. It's expected. It's the southern thing to do. And we'll talk about southern hospitality here in just a moment. But a genuine unity, think think about how these two concepts tie together with this phrase, one another. If one another means unity, then one another also means hospitality. Why? Because out of genuine unity flows tangible hospitality. Hospitality. Now, what does hospitality mean? It doesn't just mean having people in your home at random times. Now, that is one way. But what we're talking about is Hospitality is this. I mean, if you had to define it, and if you want to just jot down this basic definition, it's an enthusiastic and meaning, meaningful greeting to another brother or sister in Christ to invite into close relationship with them. And I just made that definition up on the fly. No, uh, I've, I actually forgot to write it down, so that's why it sounded a little bit off. Uh, it's a meaningful—here's here, the key words. It's a meaningful and enthusiastic greeting— to a brother or sister in Christ to enter into deeper relationship with you. This is hospitality. So hospitality isn't just being in your home uh, tonight or, or, or sometime this week, although that is one aspect, and we should open up our homes to one another. Um, let's face it, that, that's a big challenge in, our, in the culture we live in today, isn't it? Even in the South. And we'll talk about that. But, but I think what hospitality means here at our church is Showing hospitality here. Getting beyond the, the surface hospitality of, hello, how are you? How are you doing? And we just say, you know, one word answer is fine, good. And, and sometimes we struggle because we're like, okay, how do I get beyond the surface? How are you doing? Fine. Um, how do I go deeper, Pastor? Let me challenge you to ask some questions, all right? I'm going to give you some practical questions you can ask to your brothers and sisters in Christ to build deeper hospitality here in our church. Are you ready? So when you see someone next Sunday at church, rather than ask, hi, how are you? The typical Walmart thing that we do, right? Um, uh, Instead of that, say, hey, tell me about one blessing in your life this week. Tell me about one burden that you carried this week. How can I pray for you this week? I don't know about you, but those kinds of questions Break us out of the typical habits we get in where, you know, we're just going from point A to point B and we say hi to folks. And that's fine. And it's good to be friendly and to welcome people. But to ask those kinds of questions so that in some way we go deeper. So that we build genuine hospitality. And so from unity springs forth hospitality. And so when we are united in belief and purpose, then we have a desire to truly know one another and be known by one another and be around them. Here's a test of whether you're truly unified with somebody. 
do you want to spend time outside of the Sunday morning service with them? If you don't, if we don't, then on some level, that relationship is broken, is divided, there's distance. And so somehow we need to start working. And it's hard at first, believe me. But, but love is loving someone when you don't, true love, agape, is loving someone when you don't feel like it. In fact, it could be argued that the true test of Christian love is loving someone when we don't feel like loving them. And so if we don't want to spend time around each other outside of just the Sunday morning service, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we truly united? And, and, and so what's the cause of the distance between us? And so this issue of hospitality is so important. Look at Acts 2 verse 46. It says this, it says the early church, they continuing daily with one accord uh, and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with singleness and gladness of heart. Now we know that in the early church, it was a unique situation. They didn't have church buildings like we do today. And so by necessity, they had to be in homes. I sometimes wonder if that wasn't a good thing because it helped people to break down the walls that we all build between home life and church life and work life. The reality is, it's all life. And so hospitality is so vital. One of the signs of the early church's unity and hospitality uh, was seen here in this verse. But there's something also that's really cool about the first church. I got to talk about it for a second. Y'all are going to love this. One of the signs of the early church's hospitality to one another, it's mentioned five times in the New Testament. And it's a a holy kiss. How many of you know what a holy kiss is? Raise your hand if you know what a holy... How many of you have ever been greeted by a holy kiss? Probably not a lot of us, but this was one of the signs of hospitality in the early church. Now, if you go to other countries, they still practice this today, uh, specifically in the Middle East. When I traveled to the Holy Land, I saw this on several occasions. Two guys, mwah, mwah, you know. I'm like, no thanks, you know. I'm not, I'm not interested in a, in a holy kiss. But five times in Scripture, both Paul and Peter tell the churches that they're writing to to greet one another with a holy kiss. Of course, at that time and in that culture, the Bible uh, was, uh, was, was written in, a kiss was a form of greeting. The early church took this common practice of their culture and adapted it and gave it a wonderful meaning. What that kiss was, was an expression of their love, their unity, and their hospitality. I love how Peter calls it, he, Peter refers to it. In 1 Peter uh, 5.14, it says this. You have that one? Yeah. Greet one another with a, with a kiss of love, a kiss of charity. A kiss of love, a kiss of charity. So, pastor, do we start a kissing ministry? No, 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 no. We don't start a holy kiss ministry, okay? But this was one of the signs of their hospitality. And what does that mean? What did that mean? I think what it means is, is that the early church, again, they welcomed one another, they greeted one another enthusiastically and meaningfully. Because let's face it, if you're giving someone a holy kiss, it's on some level enthusiastic and meaningful. Now, don't be too enthusiastic, right? But there was a, but there was a courteous way that they did that. So, what does that mean? I think what it means for us by way of application is, is that we go beyond just the pleasantries of, hi, how are you? Fine. We go beyond that because here's what a kiss implies. Are you ready? And this is what really hospitality implies. A kiss implies closeness, right? You can't kiss somebody, you know, uh, uh, Josh, go. I can't kiss you standing on the stage and you stand over there in that corner, right? That just ain't gonna happen, right, bro? I mean, we're gonna have to get closer and have a bro hug, and uh, have a bro. Now, of course, for us, maybe it's an enthusiastic handshake and a pat, pat, you know, we, uh, guys, guys, our, our kind of enthusiastic greeting day is we shake the hand, we grab the arm, and we pull each other close in, and we give a bro hug. You know, that's us. For ladies, it might be something different. Of course, in the Baptist church, between guys and gals, it's a, it's a side hug, you know, and so, and so that's how we do, and so we get in close. The point is, is what hospitality is, is it's you letting down your guard and getting close with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And in a church that's sick, what's happened is, is because of this, the, the disunity underlying, now there's no hospitality. And people even come into this room and you can feel alone. And that's not what God desires of a local church. He desires that the local church practice hospitality to one another. So hospitality has two aspects, both within the church and when the, ch- and when the world sees that, they're like, whoa, that's crazy. They actually like each other and love each other. You know, they talk about this Christian love thing. But they actually like to be around each other. People, your neighbors see when your church family comes over to your house for a dinner. They notice that. And so then that also helps you to start thinking, wow, then we can also show hospitality to our neighbors, to our work uh, coworkers, to our to strangers. Let's face it, though, if we're not practicing hospitality with our brothers and sisters inside these walls, although the argument could be made, maybe it's easier to show hospitality to those outside than it is inside. So the argument can be made both ways. I love what Rosaria Butterfield says about hospitality. And if you know her testimony, she was a tenured lesbian professor at Syracuse University. And in 1999, a Presbyterian pastor started having her in her home one day a week for two years. And he shared the gospel with her. And through the hospitality that this pastor showed, she came to know Christ, repented of her old life, was wonderfully transformed. And of course, now is today a great voice for the gospel. She said this about hospitality. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. To deepen it. And if you've never read her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I encourage you to read it. I haven't read all of it yet. The parts I've read are incredible. And one of the things that she confronts is for us in the South, we think that hospitality has to be this big entertainment event. And I know for some of us as ladies, we want to make sure that we're being good entertainers. And so literally there's like a three-day process that we have to go through to begin to even think about having someone come in our home. What I want to challenge you to do is to get away from the idea of feeling like everything has to be just perfect and just let people in. And, 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 and for those that are going over, don't expect a, you know, this big extravagant feast. Maybe it's just getting together and having a bowl of popcorn together and watching a game or, or, uh, or, or getting together and, and just praying for one another for a little bit. But to have these times where we're going beyond just the surface. Oh, one another. If it means anything, it means unity. One another, if this phrase means anything, it means hospitality. This phrase is focused in on hospitality. But thirdly, one another means devotion. It means devotion. If you look at Romans 12, verse 10, the Bible says this, Love one another with a brotherly love. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. That uh, phrase, kindly affectioned in the Greek, one of the meanings of that phrase It means devoted, be devoted, to be kindly affection, devoted to one another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. If the gospel is indeed real and genuine in our hearts, then we need one another and we must be devoted to one another. So the question is, what's the limits of our devotion? What's the limits of our unity? Do we only stay devoted to one another as long as we like each other? Or as long as we feel like our needs are being met or we're not too mad? I've been confronted with this recently in the area of marriage. And one of the reasons we're going to start this marriage small group next Sunday night is, is to strengthen marriages. I mean, hey, do you just stick together and do you just stay devoted to a marriage as long as it's easy? Again, watching that video last night, I'm thinking, man, I knew nothing when I got married. I knew very little. And I still feel like I don't know much. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm thankful for 17 and a half years of devotion. And it's not been easy. A lot of it's been hard. But it's made the love deeper and richer. Are we devoted to one another? 
Now, this is, an, this is one of these weird ones because it's like I was ta- sharing with some folks here, here, here about a month ago. Church membership is interesting because it's not on the same level as marriage, obviously, but it's also not on the same level of decision as where you're going to go eat dinner after church either. A, a decision to join a church and to become devoted to a body of believers falls somewhere between marriage and you know, I would say it's even more important than where you're going to go to college. So between college decision and marriage decision comes a church commitment and decision and membership. And I know as a pastor living in even the culture that we live in now, a more of a transient culture, people are going to move away because of different jobs, because of different callings. In fact, one of the greatest reasons to leave a church is because you've been called out of this church as a missionary or as a pastor to go plant a church or to go help a church. And so that's hard for a pastor to see those people that he loves leave. But, but those are good reasons. But, but we all know that living in the South, it's easy to not, to not be devoted in a church relationship to one another. Why? Because I think for a lot of reasons, we still think that this is a consumer-based relationship. If the church doesn't exactly meet my needs or it's, or it's not exactly what I'm looking for, there's 400 other options I can go choose from. And so, if one another means anything, I do believe it means devotion. Devotion in membership, devotion in being involved. Um, Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews here is emphasizing the need to be devoted to assembling together, just like this. Do you know what I needed this morning? I did not feel like worshiping. Didn't. Had too many thoughts swirling in my head and circumstances and issues I'm dealing with in my own life. I know that's hard to believe because pastors aren't supposed to have any problems, but we do. (laughs) And I didn't feel like it. But you know what was so cool was to see Leah Johnson up here on this stage smiling at me. Thank you, Leah. I needed that. That did my heart good to see her up there, and, and I caught her smile. Of course, the whole worship team, and then I kind of glanced over here, and I heard, I heard a couple of my brothers and sisters from the youth group. Can I get a witness? I heard them singing, and I'm like, yes! That encouraged me. It was so encouraging to be back here at 910 and to have Pastor Don pray for our gathering. I needed that. And I think what we're hungry for is we're hungry for relationships that are truly devoted to us no matter what. Now, here's the good news. We've got a wondrous love that will never let us go. What devotion and how that should spur us on to be devoted to assembling together. You need this. We need this to be devoted in membership and involvement together. And so... What's the level of your devotion to this body? Is it just a devotion that says, as long as you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours? The reality is, is this is a covenant-based relationship, not a consumer-based one. And so this means that we stay devoted, even through the difficult seasons of life, because we have been united in a common faith, in a common purpose. And again, it's a hard thing to navigate because it is a gray area. It's not on the level of marriage. You know, when do you leave a church? When should you not? When should you stay? That's for a different sermon for a different day. But I'll just point this out about devotion. Some of the most important, catch this, do not let the enemy distract you right now for what I'm about to say. Some of the most important things in life we give up on in the hour of greatest testing just to miss out on the greatest season of blessing that is just around the corner. You learn this in investing. Anybody investors out there, you ever been through a bear market? That ain't any fun, is it? (laughs) Especially when you bought in at the top of the bull market. Remember the recession of 2008? How many of you sold out at the bottom? You better not have, because where would you be now? four, five times your investment. So we know that investing, hey, don't sell out when it looks like it's the bleakest. Stay devoted. If you believed in that company and the bull, believe it in the bear because they're still there. Marriage relationships. How strong? Listen, are you going to give up when you've had a four-hour argument and you're up at 2 a.m.? 
you going to call it quits? I can tell you this. In the 17 years we've been married, some of the lowest seasons that we've ever been through as a married couple, when we get, got through that, it was the best season ever. That's what you have to do. Same way in a church. Oh, some of the most important things in life we give up on in the hour of greatest testing just to miss out on the greatest season of blessing that is just around the corner. But, but, but even if it's not the greatest season just around the corner, do we stay devoted? Do we stay devoted knowing that ultimately we find redemption and rescue and hope in the season of eternity that will not end? Devotion. So if unity, if, 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 if this phrase, one another, means anything, it means unity, it means that we are to show hospitality as a church, to be devoted to one another as a church, and then finally, one another means edification. It means to build up. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11 and the use of this phrase, one another. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. The word edify means to build somebody up, not to tear them down. How many of you are tired of, of social media tearing you down all the time? It's like, man, I scroll through there and I'm like, okay, everybody likes to be negative, you know? Where's something to build me up? And, 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 and so for some of y'all, you know, you share these beautiful thoughts and I'm like, oh, wow, that edifies me today. We're looking for people to build us up. Now, we're also looking for people to build us up through honest, tough love. That's what we as parents have to do a lot of times. Now the kid might, all right, so kids don't try this today. Don't go home and say, now mom and dad, pastor said you should build me up. And that means you should always be positive and encouraging and not ever give me a whooping or give me any punishments in life. No, actually the Bible uses a lot of words for edification. Are you ready for them? Number one, admonishment. So the word edify means to admonish, to teach, to instruct, to encourage, to exhort, and to provoke. All of those words point to the idea of helping a believer grow in their relationship with God. So there are times when edifying someone means you did wrong, you need to repent, will you change your mind, and if not, there's some teaching and instruction that can help in love, of course, not in anger and, not in anger and unrighteous wrath. And then there's times when we need someone to just say, you know what? I'm glad you're here today. You know what? Thank you for giving that Sunday school lesson. That encouraged me. Young people, sometimes your parents just need to hear that, that you love them and that they're doing a good job. Edify them. They've got a tough job. One day you'll realize just how tough it is. So one another means to build up, to edify. And that's what we're to do as a church. Man, to edify. And so edification can take the shape of encouragement, but it can also take the shape of admonishment for things done wrong. Of course, it's so much easier to admonish. <laughs> it's easy to point out the negative and say, all right, I'm going to correct that. But do we encourage when we see good, spirit-filled behaviors and lifestyles, do we encourage with our words? God's will is that believers edify one another. And yes, this is the calling of pastors and key leaders in the church. We're, we're called and equipped to build up the saints, to do the work of the ministry, to edify them. But I believe that God also gave this calling to all of us as the church to edify and to encourage one another. Romans 14, 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and wherewith one may edify another. So why do we not build up? Why do we not edify? Well, I think, number one, it's because we estimate, we underestimate our ability that God has given to us to do this. Um, sometimes we think, well, what I say, it's not really important anyway. But the Bible says in Proverbs, a word spoken in due season, how good is it? And we can all open our mouth and encourage and build up and edify. And so one another, what does it mean? It means unity. It means hospitality. It means devotion. It means edification. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says this, love edifies. Love builds up. Knowledge, that's great. 
And listen, we should be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the word. But if in growing in our knowledge and understanding of the word, we aren't growing in our love for one another, then that knowledge is useless. Because it's love that builds up. And of course, this comes full circle, doesn't it? To what we looked at at the very beginning of the message in John 13. Love one another as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. So take out that string. Now, I don't know if you can do this, and I, I wouldn't test this, but I'm going to guess several of you in here today could snap this string pretty easy. It's probably not that hard. I mean, it's kind of thick yarn, but I think we could break that pretty easily. But you know where I'm going with this. I, I love going to weddings. I love seeing how each wedding is laid out. And, of course, we've got some youngins that are going to be getting married here soon. And, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I think it was Austin and Heather's wedding, guys. I went to your wedding, and I love this. There's a part in the ceremony where, where there's a different symbol that the couple chooses. We had the unity candle. Some folks have the unity cross. Um, some have the unity sand. That one's cool. You know, two different colors of sand, poor men. I think Austin and Heather, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think they had the unity rope. I love that. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You might be able to break this single strand pretty easy, but I guarantee you, weave three of them together and see how fast you can snap that. The point is, in order for us to be bound together, we've got to be close, <laughs> we've got to be united in belief and direction. We've got to be devoted to one another. And then you know what? When we're together, when we're together, we're strong. We're healthy. And so it's my prayer that you will take this little strand over the next few weeks. Maybe put it on your fridge, tie it to your finger. I saw Marvin had it tied to his finger. Good Marvin. May this be a prayer reminder to you over the next few weeks. You know what? One of the biggest things we need in our church right now is for a season of spirit-focused led prayer. God, we want to be a healthy, thriving, effective church, whatever that means. Father, we want to be good stewards. We want to be faithful stewards. And Father, if we're going to do that, we've got to do that together as one another, together. And so may this be a prayer reminder to you over the next couple of weeks. And on the final Sunday... We'll see how many of you have not lost it. <laughs> and I want you to bring it back on that final Sunday. And what we're going to do on that final Sunday is weave all of these strands together and just see how big we can get that weave, <laughs> how big we can make that piece of rope. See how strong we can be together as a church.